just because you have a tool or technology does not necessarily imply that you're going to get better clinical outcomes. So... Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hello again. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions. We're the creators of the Market Penetration Roadmap. So if you have a piece of technology, a device, some sort of healthcare innovation, and you want to get it in the hands of clinicians, you can check that out at strategy.rehabupracticesolutions.com. All right, this week... We are taking a dive into the research around technology and digital health, primarily in the musculoskeletal space. So I'm a former professor, uh, used to teach some evidence-based practice courses, intro to research research courses and such at the university when I was a, uh, a faculty member there. So I always get these emails, probably from things that I've signed up in uh, you know over the years, teaching some of those courses. And I always get these emails from uh, groups that are publishing or, you know, a little newsletter about a, a new article that was published in this area and this area. And most of these databases have all been in musculoskeletal space because I am an occupational therapist by trade, was working in uh, an outpatient hand clinic for a long time, own a, an outpatient physical therapy clinic. So I get these emails all the time from uh, the JAMA network and, and places like that whenever a new study is published that meets my criteria. So recently, I had a, come across my inbox four interesting articles that I figured we'd dive into because they're specifically related to digital health, uh, wearables, um, and artificial intelligence, and how the implementation of some of these tools, technologies, resources, etc., um, have affected real patients in their clinical outcomes. I know we talk a lot about healthcare innovation, healthcare technology here on the podcast, on the show. I do a lot of work with healthcare technology companies. Um, and a lot of it tends to be focused on some of this, uh, not the emotional hype, because I get excited about some of this stuff too. Some of these technological advancements are really cool or really fun to be working on or exciting to see what happens. Um, the the faculty, the, the professor side of me wants to go back and say, okay, well, does it work? What do we know about implementing these tools, implementing these technologies, and how does it affect clinical outcomes, you know, the cost of care, et cetera? So, uh, I mean, a perfect example of this is uh, years and years ago, my, my late father-in-law had a kidney, uh, kidney issue. I think they had to take out one of his kidneys because there was a, a, a cancer on it. And they, instead of the surgeon going in and doing it, the, sur- the surgeon used this robot. It was a robot-based surgery. And the end bill for their insurance was like $100,000 more 
um, if I remember correctly. It was it was into the six figures more uh, for doing the robot surgery than doing the than having the clinician or the the surgeon do the 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 procedure himself or herself. And um, I remember thinking at the time. Like, what kind of evidence is out there to support the use of a robot surgery, which added six figures to the end bill, versus just having the surgeon complete the procedure themselves? Is there a track record of uh, improvement or, you know, risk of infection going down, or risk of complications going down based off of using this, this robot? And at the time, you know, this is, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago, at the time the answer was, we kind of don't know. It was very inconclusive. Um, so part of me is always skeptical, not skeptical, but always wanting to go back to the cost efficacy, the clinical efficacy of using some of these new uh, flashy technologies or tools specifically around patient care because in our current model, um, and I just did a LinkedIn post about this uh, recently, like in our in in our current model of healthcare, this fee-for-service model, um, implementing some of these technologies has a real and felt cost, both to the insurance provider, the payer, but also the patient who's paying out of pocket with increasing out of pocket uh, maximums every year and co-pays and co-insurance and deductibles. Implementing some of these technologies has a real cost. And the question is, does this cost uh, make up for it or add value, or is it a good return on investment versus just something that is super cool to use? Because I get the super cool to use thing, and I, will, I like to use things that are super cool to use, right? Um, but the question is, does it make a clinical difference? Um, and what, what can we glean from some of the research that's already out there as it pertains to improving the quality of life, um, clinical, uh, clinical improvements, clinical outcomes, using some of these technologies versus just standard care. Now, I am also very aware and you know, my belief in this is that as the research continues to be completed in this area, specifically around using technology tools, et cetera, we're going to see some improvement, whether it be a reduced risk of medical complications or or something of the like, just improved clinical decision-making using some of these tools. And we had uh, Dr. Harvey on the on the podcast a while back talking about chat GPT in healthcare. Um, I'll link to that episode in the show notes. But his view was that imagine a physician who's at the end of a long, you know, 12-hour ER shift and the last patient that comes in, you know, he's got eight minutes left on his shift or whatever. The last patient that comes in is, you know, maybe has chest pain or something like that. It seems like a relatively routine, uh, routine assessment. The doctor does the assessment. He's at the end of his shift, though, so he's tired. He for, he, maybe he misses something that uh, causes the patient maybe some big clinical, negative clinical outcome down the line versus using something like an AI-based clinical decision-making aid or, or checker even, like a, a checklist che <laughs> um, tool that runs the clinician who's tired, who's at the end of his, who's at the end of his shift, who might not be thinking as sharply as he, he or she was at the beginning of their shift to rule out any potential risks for negative outcomes. So this idea of using healthcare technology 
to aid in clinical decision-making to prevent the risk of negative outcomes or misdiagnoses or things like that, I believe is going to be invaluable in the years to come. Um, I don't believe, like some people uh, say, that you know artificial intelligence is going to make clinicians obsolete. I was talking to a, a PA friend of mine this weekend over the, the 4th of July holiday, and that was his contention. Well, in five years, we're going to have to go get a different job because AI is going to take over. Um, I don't believe that. So anyways, I'm going to go through these articles. Now, these articles are specific to musculoskeletal pain, to health and fitness. But I imagine that if you did some of these studies or if you looked at the, the research in other areas of healthcare, you'd find similar results. But, you know, I didn't look at those studies, so don't take my word for it. So the first article is a systematic review, and the title is, quote, A Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of the Effects of Rehabilitation Using Digital Healthcare on Musculoskeletal Pain and Quality of Life. And um, this article was published in the Journal of Pain Research, and it was published in uh, 2023, so, you know, relatively new, uh, May 31st, 2023. So, anyways... The, the, this article looked at um, using, they called it digital healthcare, and now their, their definition of digital healthcare is fairly broad. It's basically, quote, where digital technology is converging with healthcare, end quote. So obviously that leaves a lot of room for, uh, for interpretation, like what qualifies as digital technology. You know, what, I would like it to be a little bit more standardized. However, they wanted to study the effects and evaluate the effectiveness of musculoskeletal rehabilitation using uh, digital healthcare um, and how that compared to regular or standard care. Um, I mean, it was a pretty intense review. I want to say they looked at 1,300 articles, give or take. After a few reviews, they included 54. And those 54 articles totaled or had 6,200 participants, give or take, a little bit more than 6,200. But that kind of gives you a, a, an understanding of the size and the scope of, of some of this, of, of the articles that were included. So the measurement outcomes that they focused on were uh, pain, physical function, joint range of motion, and then quality of life. Now, what was interesting here is that most of the studies were conducted on patients with knee and hip pain or status post knee or hip replacement. There was also studies that included carpal tunnel releases, shoulder disorders. So this is these articles kind of covered everything on the musculoskeletal side, upper extremity, lower extremity, some back pain as well, lumbar disc, distal radio uh, fractures, and then a and then there were also articles that included fibromyalgia. Now, the effectiveness, this is the, the stuff that we really care about, right? How effective is digital healthcare and when combined with rehabilitation on quality of life and pain? So as far as pain goes, the, the group that had or the use of digital healthcare significantly improved pain compared to control groups. So they divided the studies into subgroups based on the duration of the disease, acute uh, and chronic. Um, so in individuals with acute or subacute musculoskeletal pain, 
digital healthcare or digital healthcare in combination with rehabilitation resulted in much more favorable outcomes compared to control groups. And individuals with chronic pain, the difference was only marginally significant. Now, I would imagine because chronic pain is one of those things that doesn't get significantly better in a short amount of time, that that's par for the course, just given the diagnosis of chronic pain versus acute pain. So the greatest reduction in pain was observed with a follow-up duration of less than one month. So the effect of digital health on pain reduction decreased as follow-up duration increased, which basically just means that it probably what happened is the participants of the study when they got discharged from therapy or discharged from rehabilitation stopped logging into the system stopped following their home program like many patients do and then you see the efficacy drop down over time so it is one of those things that obviously we need to find a way of of transitioning these patients from acute rehab patients to kind of long-term maintenance what do we what do we do to make sure they don't lapse back into pain etc or re-injure themselves so I thought that was interesting that what we have here, and now my take on this, I didn't do a deep, deep dive into any of these articles. I just kind of read the the review here, skimmed the, the systematic review. My take on this would be that the reason that digital health enabled rehabilitation was more effective in reducing pain than control groups really had more to do, less to do with the technology probably, Um, like whether or not you were using this platform versus that platform or this tool versus that tool. But it had more to do, at least in my mind, I would assume it had more to do with the fact that there were increased touch points between the clinician and the patient. So maybe increased access, the ability to message, the ability to maybe it was something as simple as logging into an app and viewing videos of whatever exercises the clinician had prescribed to the patient, being able to track and monitor the outcomes, their own goals, their progress, et cetera. And I think with that, at least again, my take would be that that led to higher levels of just active participation and engagement on the part of the patients in their own uh, rehab program. And that's what led to greater pain reduction. Because what we all know from the physical rehab space is that active participation yields better uh, pain reduction and long-term outcomes and passive, uh, being a passive recipient of care um, and maybe doing some sort of tech-enabled program um, encourage patients to step into that role a little bit more. At least that's just my take. For quality of life, um, there were 18 studies of the 54 that assessed quality of life, so a smaller number. However, what is interesting is that the the improvement in health-related quality of life was not significant in each group based on the duration of pain, but there was significant improvement in health-related quality of life in studies where the duration of pain was not some a factor in it. So what they mean by that is like um, gauging quality of life on a knee patient who had six months of knee pain versus three months of knee pain. They weren't able to tease out an improvement between uh, those two types of patients. But what they were able to say was, regardless of how long the pain was, there was a significant improvement in health-related quality of life in patients that were treated using digital healthcare in rehabilitation. So again, where where the duration of the pain was not uh, either confirmed or taken into account. So again, 
I, I would think that part of that has to do with the patient experience, the patient engagement factor of it. If you feel like you're the, the clinician is actively engaged in your own care, cares about you individually, has built a relationship, is using this technology or this tool to make sure that you're you know, monitoring your progress, that you're improving, that you're actually getting better, that might leave the patient with a better uh, healthcare experience. And that does translate into their feelings of um, life satisfaction, satisfaction with care, improvement, their overall outlook for their, their current level of function and their hope for the future. So that, that's something that's, that's interesting. Um, but basically, so this one article was a, the systematic review and the meta-analysis of digital health in uh, musculoskeletal rehabilitation or musculoskeletal disorders. Um, the, the conclusion that they came up with this article or the conclusion from the article is that digital healthcare-based interventions can, may serve as a valuable alternative for rehabilitations with patients uh, with musculoskeletal disorders and associated pain. However, um, it's one of those things that they always say this, further research is needed. Um, it is a good, uh, a good sign though that implementing some of these technologies is not just for the hype, it's not just something that, like a marketing ploy to get people into the clinic, this is something that has been shown to improve quality of life and pain. So it would make sense to begin implementing it into just standard care. Like I, like I always say about technology, telehealth, all of this kind of stuff, if you would, is that we really need to start thinking about it as a tool in the toolbox as opposed to replacing, you know, you either get in-clinic care or virtual care. There's no reason that it can't be a hybrid model, and it really should be a hybrid model, where maybe there's there's a time for the patient to come into the clinic, maybe there's a time for the patient to be monitored remotely or to be um, managed remotely and that via digital means, and that's totally fine. And what we're seeing from the research now is that some that integration, some of that integration is actually showing some benefit for patients uh, when compared with just standard care. And again, my take on this would be because of the increased engagement, improved touch points, et cetera, that's what's going to lead to some of these uh, outcomes. So I wouldn't get hung up on the type of platform or the type of technology. I think the big thing to, to look for in these situations would be what is this, is this technology or device or platform something that increases patient engagement, increases the flow of communication or improves the flow of communication between the clinician and the patient? And if so, let's try to implement it because it's probably going to lead to better clinical outcomes. At least that's my take. All right. The second article that came across my desk, which was pretty interesting, had to do with wearables and patients that were actually hospitalized. So wearing a device to monitor physical activity while the patient is in the hospital. So the, the question the, the, the researchers were trying to answer, well, let me just get to the, the article and tell you where it was first. Uh, so this was from the uh, JAMA network and it was published June 15th, 2023, so relatively recently. And the title is Interventions Using Wearable Activity Trackers to Improve Patient Physical Activity and Other Outcomes in Adults Who Were Hospitalized, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Okay, so the question that was being addressed here was, are there interventions or are the interventions that use wearable activity trackers 
during the course of a patient's hospitalization, are those interventions associated with improvements in physical activity, decrease in sedentary behavior, and uh, clinical and hospital efficacy outcomes, or efficiency outcomes, forgive me. Um, so it was a, a meta-analysis systematic review. They got to 15 studies, 1,900 participants that used some kind of wearable activity tracker during the hospitalization. Now, what was interesting about this, and I don't think it really, like it's not like a, you're not discovering a sun, a new sun here, Copernicus, but wearing an activity tracker is associated with higher physical activity, less sedentary behavior, and improved physical function. However, it was not associated with improvements in other clinical or hospital efficiency outcomes. So what we can take away from this is that the, the wearable activity trackers can increase the patient activity, reduce some of their sedentary behavior and kind of improve on those metrics. However, as the authors state, there was no uh, improvement in pain, mental health, and then the readmission level either. So this is one of those things where, okay, there's they, we do improve the activity level, we do decrease sedentary behavior. It doesn't seem to be associated, at least in this study, with, with the decreased admission rates. Now, obviously there's so many variables when you're looking at admission rate. You know, it might be discharge environment, it might be readiness for discharge, it might be all of those things. Uh, so it's something, but it is something to be aware of that just because we're, just because you're raising the activity level in a patient in the hospital does not necessarily mean they're going to have a lower incidence of readmission or lower risk of admissions. Now, the, apparently these, the findings were consistent with broader evidence out there around wearable activity trackers um, increasing the, the physical activity across many different populations. However, um, most of those studies focused on patients that were in the community, which is just not in the hospital, basically, community and outpatient settings, uh, evidence consistently shows in those populations improved clinical outcomes, such as you know improved aerobic capacity, specifically for those patients undergoing, for example, cardiac rehabilitation. Um, and then there's other cardiometabolic health biomarkers that can be tracked for different diseases and stuff. So activity trackers have been shown on the outpatient side of things to improve those uh, those metrics, those findings. The findings in this study extend that evidence to uh, interventions that are in hospital populations or, or hospitalized patients. So it is interesting to see the kind of the expanse of some of this digital technology making its way from just the outpatient centers to now inpatient and how do we use it in inpatient. It's going to be interesting over the next several years to see this research kind of build upon itself. Um, and maybe you can make the link for, and I, I'm, you know, being a, in the outpatient rehabilitation world or just being from the physiotherapy world myself, I, my bias would be to say that, yes, there's a correlation between physical activity in the hospital and, you know, long-term outcomes like readmission rates. We just haven't found it yet, um, but that's my biased opinion. But it will be interesting over the next little bit of time to see some of these studies being uh, completed and then the results published for for those people that are in in the hospital wearing these trackers, wearing activity trackers, and if we can make the connection between physical activity and decreased risk of readmissions or rehospitalizations or something like that. What is interesting to note is that there was 
in this study, they they determined a mean difference of 826 steps per day while hospitalized for those patients that were wearing activity trackers versus not. The reason that that is important is that there are studies that show that increasing daily step counts, even by as little as 250 to 500 steps a day, has been associated with reduced risk for adverse hospital outcomes. So um, what that means is increasing the steps by 826 puts you over that threshold. So you could make the make at least the the argument that improving or using some of these digital or uh, wearable activity trackers pushes patients over that threshold, which at least on the surface would seem to decrease the risk of negative hospital events. Now, there were there weren't many uh, in this article. There was not a threshold for the activity time, like how much activity time. However, what was interesting was that they said that many older adults who were hospitalized spend on average only 45 minutes per day walking or standing. You know, that's why we tell, when I was in acute care, we used to tell patients all the time, like, listen, you gotta get up, you gotta get moving. Every day you lay in the hospital bed is like another two or three days of recovery just because you get decompensated by not moving, by laying down and, you know, atrophying or getting weaker, decompensating. So decreasing or increasing the activity level, and in this study it was by 9.75 active minutes a day, so not a whole lot. I mean, you're talking about going from 45 minutes a day on average to, what, 54, 56 minutes a day, so still under an hour, about an hour a day, though, um, appears to be, quote, considerable difference in active time achievement by patients who are hospitalized, and this shows promise for using they were calling them WATs or wearable activity trackers to increase physical activity and improve patient recovery during hospitalization. So it's one of those things that as research continues to grow in this area, I think you're going to see some just a, a, a greater strengthening of, of this type of intervention in the hospital. So one of the things they also looked at was gait speed because gait speed is understood to be a useful predictor of, of survival and disability in older adults. So increasing the gait speed to just 0.1 meters a second is associated with a 12% lower risk of mortality at a minimum of five-year follow-up. And that's one of the articles they cited um, in this research study. So what they're saying is that even small improvements in physical function that are associated with the use of some of these wearable activity trackers during hospitalization can potentially have substantial benefits for patients considering you know, increasing the activity level and tolerance can affect gait speed. So it's again, it's it's just interesting to see some of this stuff coming to the forefront and being published because we hear about it a lot you know, this technology is coming, how, how are wearables going to change healthcare? And for me anyways, maybe it's just my bias because I'm in the outpatient world a lot. Um, both the, the practice that I run is, is an outpatient practice. And then the, the organizations, the healthcare technology companies that I work with are targeting outpatient physiotherapy clinics. So I just spend a lot of time in the outpatient world. We hear about, you know, remote therapeutic monitoring and, uh, activity trackers and wearables and our mind shifts to, uh, the the outpatient world. These patients are going out into the community. They're they're going to be doing their exercises or completing some kind of activity, and then we monitor them from the clinic, and then they come back in. But it's uh, 
the benefits can still be there for hospitals. And arguably, as we move more to a value-based reimbursement system, it might be more uh, valuable for hospital systems because if they can show a clear link between physical activity in the hospital and decreased readmission rates, well, that's a big metric there (laughs) that you can improve. So um, it'll be interesting to see that going forward. The third article is uh, a Cochrane review, so a systematic review, um, and it, the title of the article is Digital Technology for Delivering and Monitoring Exercise Programs for People with Cystic Fibrosis. This one was published in June of 2023, and I'll link to all these articles in the show notes if you want to go read them yourself. Um, but the this is the 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 problem of the study or the problem the study was trying to address is the problem that basically everybody <laughs> in the outpatient physical therapy world is trying to address um, exercise is beneficial we know that for pain for function for range of motion and also for the treatment of cystic fibrosis however adherence to exercise is severely limited everybody who has ever worked in outpatient physical or occupational therapy knows this, you know, Mr. Smith comes in. Hey, Mr. Smith, how are your exercises going? I didn't do them. I forgot to do them. I got busy, whatever it was. So there, the, this study aimed to try to improve that or to see if digital technology could improve, uh, exercise adherence for patients specifically with cystic fibrosis. But this is one of those things that the the application is broad because everybody every patient population <laughs> has difficulty adhering to exercises so the objectives uh, they wanted to evaluate the benefits and potential harms of digital healthcare technologies for delivering and monitoring exercises program exercise programs specifically increasing adherence to exercise regimens and improving key clinical outcomes for patients with cystic fibrosis what is interesting is that they looked at two main ways of, of quote unquote, implementing this digital health. So the first one was digital technologies for monitoring physical activity, and then digital health health technologies for delivering those exercise programs. So this is the, goes back to that whole dichotomy between is it in clinic versus at, in clinic versus digital, you know, versus only digital versus only only clinical versus some kind of hybrid. What they discovered, I'm going to do the, the digital health technologies for delivering exercise programs first, um, and then we'll kind of bounce back to the, the digital healthcare monitoring uh, devices. So for delivering exercise programs to patients, so web versus face-to-face exercise deliver, delivery, the evidence is, quote, very uncertain about the effects of web-based compared to face-to-face exercise delivery, specifically on adherence to physical activity as assessed by all of the number of participants in the study or covered in the studies after three months of intervention. So what they're basically saying here is that there's very little evidence or they're uncertain about the effects of web-based compared to -to face-to-face. So more to follow on that. And this whole article or this whole systematic review is in that vein of uncertainty. So they had a few different... Uh, categories for the digital health technologies for monitoring the physical activity. So there were wearable fitness trackers plus a personal exercise prescription that was compared to just a personal exercise prescription alone. And they didn't, apparently they, they 
there were 40 adults that were evaluated with this outcome, but they did not report data for any of the primary outcomes. So inconclusive there. The two other ones were interesting were wearable fitness tracker plus some kind of text messaging for personal feedback and goal setting compared to wearable fitness tracker alone. So this is not just comparing a wearable fitness tracker to nothing. This is a fitness tracker with, with notifications basically compared to fitness tracker by itself. The evidence is uncertain about the effects of wearable fitness tracker plus this text messaging compared to just the wearable technology alone for um, physical uh, activity. And this was measured by step count at six months. So basically what we're, we're narrowing it down to is maybe something as simple as like in the last study, giving the patient a wearable fitness tracker, or encouraging them to get a wearable fitness tracker is enough to get some of the benefit without the added step of um, text messages or notifications or something like that. The, the last segment that they had here was web-based applications that recorded, monitored, and set goals on physical activity plus usual care you know, in the clinic, maybe exercises in the clinic compared to usual care alone. Um, now, using a web-based application to do all of that stuff um, may result in a little to no difference on time spent in moderate to vigorous physical activity, and that's measured by accelerometers in the wearables um, compared to usual care alone at a six-month follow-up. So then the question is, is it the, the web-based application that's monitoring the patient's activity that's failing to elicit that at six months, or is there some other some other factor that's keeping patients from maintaining that level of you know moderate to vigorous physical activity six months out? Um, basically, the the conclusion from this article is that it's it's uncertain at this time what the effects are of implementing some kind of exercise program with the use of a wearable fitness tracker um, in order to to improve. Uh, exercise adherence to patients with cystic fibrosis. Now, maybe there's there's some kind of factor in patients with, with cystic fibrosis that might not be associated with patients with chronic pain. I don't know. I think that if you have a, a patient with chronic musculoskeletal pain, as an example, they're, they're going to have their own limitations that are going to prevent them from completing exercises. So basically, their conclusion is that we need more research. Basically, they want high-quality, randomized, controlled uh, trials um, to report the effects of digital health technologies on clinically important outcome measures such as physical activity, um, intensity, self-managed behavior, um, and and the like. Some some other ones that were specific to to chronic uh, or to cystic fibrosis. So, again, this is one of those articles that kind of just tells you we need more research. We can't tell much right now. Um, so, it'll be one of those more to follows. I I tend to think that. Given this study or this systematic review that only included four trials, each of them had a small number of participants, that there's probably more to the story here than we're getting. And it's just a, a matter of the amount of research, probably given the, the patient population. I think if you did this type of research in a focus on a different population, maybe musculoskeletal pain or chronic pain or something like that, you would just have more more studies to pull from and maybe be able to see a little bit more of the difference between digital versus non-digital health and all of that. So anyways, my take on, on that uh, study. I just thought it was interesting because, you know, it's a Cochrane review on uh, wearables and the monitoring uh, physical activity and exercise program uh, adherence, which is something, again, anybody in the physiotherapy space knows is a 
challenge. All right, the last article here is another JAMA Network article. It was published in June of 2023, so June 27th, 2023, so only a couple weeks old at the time of this recording. And the title of the article is, is Effects of an Artificial Intelligence-Based Self-Management App on Musculoskeletal Health in Patients with Neck and or Low Back Pain Referred to Specialist Care, a Randomized Control Trial. So this is one of those interesting ones that caught my eye because AI is in the news all the time. Now it seems like, especially in healthcare, and AI is going to replace clinicians, this, that, and the other. Uh, the interesting finding here, so the question they were trying to to answer is if we use an app that has that's artificially based and it creates a personalized healthcare or a pro personalized exercise program for these patients um, or a self-management program for these patients, um, does that improve clinical outcomes compared to quote usual care or web-based self-management support? via telehealth on, muscul uh, on musculoskeletal health patients. So the findings were, again, uh, there was the randomized controlled trial was completed, 294 adults with neck and or low back pain that were referred to specialist care. So that's you know a pretty decent uh, sample size there. The individually tailored app was used in conjunction to usual care, and then it was used um, it, it wasn't used at all, and the, the patient just received usual care. The finding, though, is that it did not, quote, did not significantly improve musculoskeletal health more than usual care alone or non-tailored web-based support at three months. So the findings would suggest that further research is needed, obviously, to investigate the utility of implementing digitally supported self-management interventions for those with neck and or low back pain referred to specialist care and to identify instruments that capture changes in self-management behavior because again the key in musculoskeletal pain and, and the like is is that self-management we want the patients to become drivers of their own health care not become passive recipients of care where they need to you know go to the physical therapist every you know week for the next three years of their life we want them in and out um we want them to get better to get the skills um, the ability to to manage their own uh, pain and then to be able to do that independently once they're discharged. So um, what is interesting, let me dive into the research here or into the article a bit. So self-management obviously is the key, is a key element for care in patients with, that have consistent or persistent musculoskeletal pain of any kind, but this was neck and low back pain. What they or the conclusion or the results would suggest, is that using an artificial intelligence-based app in uh, conjunction with normal physiotherapy um, is not significantly more effective in improving musculoskeletal health um, than either the usual care alone or even web-based non-tailored self-management support in patients. So, you know, maybe it's like a an online, let me see if I can find what this web-based non-tailored support meant or, or what they what they decided that that included because it might have been something like a web page that had resources or something like that which i could already tell you is probably not going to be read by most of the patients so so they called it e-help and it was basically a website that mimicked the content of this ai-based app but it wasn't 
individually tailored. So it, it was probably just a series of articles or something like that, maybe some infographics, uh, but it wasn't specific to that patient. So probably what happened is most patients didn't even go to the e-help. <laughs> maybe they did. Um, I would venture to say their, their click-through rate was pretty low. But what I think is interesting is to look at, in their discussion, they talk about how the individually tailored uh, information versus the non-individually tailored information doesn't have a, a big impact on the musculoskeletal health at three months compared to usual care alone. I think what's missing here though is, or maybe this just validates what my own thought is on this topic, is that the information alone doesn't do much. Um, it's One, it's the relationship. It's that the patient feels supported by the clinician and then the accountability there it's not just about implementing a technology or tool and then saying, okay, now the patients are going to be better. Because as I write in the book, Better Outcomes, A Guide to Humanizing Healthcare, much of healthcare is a human experience. And when we look at implementing technology into the context of, of healthcare service delivery, what we need to do is focus on, does this technology, this technological tool, this device, increase or improve the relationship between the clinician and the patient or the patient and the organization in such a way that they are more engaged, become more active participants in their healthcare? And if the answer is yes, you're probably going to get some clinical improvements as a result. If the patient is simply handed a tool or device or technology, there's the benefit isn't necessarily going to be realized. Basically what I'm saying is you can't just rely on a tool or a technology to get the outcomes you want. The outcomes you want stem from and, and result from the patients becoming active participants, actively engaged in their healthcare and their treatment, and maybe in this case, a rehab program for their neck and back. And that only happens really when they are given a reason to become active participants. Now, maybe that's Maybe that we'll get to the point where uh, an AI-based uh, app of some kind is able to tap into those intrinsic motivators of the patient to drive them to become uh, active, actively engaged in the program that it develops. We'll see. At least right now, though, it still is a human relationship, and it, each person is uniquely different. They're on their own unique road to recovery. I say this a lot, but it's the role of the clinician, and it's one of the things that clinicians are uniquely able to do because we're human is to walk alongside or come alongside a patient who is in, in this case, chronic pain, neck, back pain, and walk with them to their desired future state um, that makes clinicians effective. It's not so much that we have the information because anybody can Google exercises for back pain or for neck pain. Um, they're available on uh, on WebMD, probably uh, a thousand other sites. So what I tell patients that come into the clinic, what I tell students that come through the organization, you know, when I was a professor and now that they come through the clinic here on clinic rotations, like your job is on the internet. <laughs> most of, of the recommendations that you would make, most of the exercises that you would prescribe are available for the most part free and accessible to anybody. What makes you unique, what makes clinicians valuable in the healthcare process is the fact that we are able to tap into those intrinsic motivators. We're able to 
establish a relationship with a patient and then leverage that relationship on behalf of our patients and clients to get them to achieve their desired future state, whether that be better physical health, decreased pain, et cetera. Um, and that's not something, at least right now, that is doable via an app or something like that. So anyways, those were just a few interesting articles that have made it across my uh, inbox in the last, I don't know, few weeks that I've been kind of sitting on thinking about, uh, especially with the focus here on healthcare innovation and technology and, and how do we how do we implement it? Should we implement it? Um, is it something as simple as implementing a, a, a tech tool alone that makes the clinical outcome? Obviously, I think most all of these articles kind of point to that fact that just because you have a tool or technology does not nece- necessarily imply that you're going to get better clinical outcomes. So I think it, it's still a human thing. It's still a human relationship. And patient engagement is really where it's at. And now there are tools that can help you improve patient engagement, but they're all related to and they all involve increasing access, improving lines of communication, decreasing barriers, that sort of thing. So anyways, those are my thoughts on the subject. If you like the show, head on over to iTunes, leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And uh, if you happen to be a, a healthcare organization, conference or otherwise and are looking for speakers for an upcoming event, you can head on over to the website rehabupracticesolutions.com or rafisalazar.com and find out about how to book me to speak. And uh, if you are a healthcare technology startup, primarily in the musculoskeletal space, and you want to get your tool or your device into the hands of physiotherapists and clinicians that can actually benefit from it, uh, reach out to me. I'd love to have a conversation with you and find out what you've got going on and if there's a way that I can help you. You can do that at strategy.rehabupracticesolutions.com or head on over to rehabupracticesolutions.com. There's plenty of links there to, to schedule a call with me. Until the next time, folks, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcome Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.